X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Wednesday, June 30th. Today, back in the day on June 30th, 1859, French acrobat Charles Blondin crossed Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Blondin had a keen awareness of the morbid curiosities of spectators and gamblers who placed bets on his daring exploits. But even without the 25,000 thrill-seeking fans who gleefully watched the stunt, Blondin would have crossed the falls anyway. Blondin said a rope walker, back then known as a rope dancer or a fun ambulist, was like a poet, born and not made. He attached a 1,300-foot hemp rope on both sides of the massive waterfall. The two-inch thick rope was the only thing separating him from the churning water below. The entire walk took about 20 minutes. Most people might have quit while they were ahead, but not Charles Blondin. He repeated the feat hundreds of times in the ensuing years. He would backflip and somersault his way over the rope. Once, he carried his manager, Harry Colcard, across the falls on his back. And in perhaps his most elaborate crossing, Blondin carried a stove and utensils on his back and, at the center of the cable, prepared an omelet and lowered it to passengers on a passing ferry. Later, Blondin's manager wrote, quote, He was more like a fantastic sprite than a human being. Had he lived a century or two earlier, he would have been treated as one possessed of a devil. He could walk the rope as a bird cleaves to air. Today, back in the day on June 30th, 1958, radical social justice lawyer Irving Goodman passed away. Before the public defenders were guaranteed in Oregon, there was Irving Goodman. From the late 20s until his death, Goodman represented communists, union, union leaders, immigrants facing deportation, and many others who often faced an unsympathetic and biased court system. Goodman majored in sociology at Reed College before attending the Northwestern College of Law. Having witnessed police brutality his whole life, Goodman wrote that, quote, his practice would involve only cases of social justice. He served as a local attorney for the International Labor Defense, widely considered to be an arm of the U.S. Communist Party. Many of his clients were immigrant laborers who joined the party looking to improve their poor wages and work conditions. Workers were charged with criminal syndicalism, a collection of laws meant to target socialists and prevent them from organizing. Irvin Goodman passed away on June 30, 1958, at the age of 62. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Cheyenne Holiday and Vivian Satterfield from Oregon Water Futures. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. The city of Portland has issued an immediate ban on all fireworks. This is due to the record-setting heat creating an extreme fire risk. Clark County also banned the use and sale of fireworks through midnight on July 4th. Bend, Cannon Beach, Battleground, Camas, and Washougal have all issued similar restrictions. The city of Vancouver has had a firework ban in place since 2016. There's no timetable for the ban in Portland, but it's likely to remain in place through the weekend. 
However, the city also said it doesn't have enough investigators and officers to enforce the bans. For this reason, the Fire Bureau asked Portlanders not to call 911 to report fireworks. That will allow them to keep the lines open for fires and medical emergencies. Even though they won't be patrolling, firefighters will investigate any fire that they believe was a result of fireworks. People who light fireworks that cause damage during the ban could be fined $500, $1,000, or $2,000, or, or face jail time depending on how often they've been previously cited. And now your daily dose of data. 69.4% of the eligible population has received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Just about 19,000 more Oregonians need to get vaccinated in order for us to hit 70%. However, statewide emergency pandemic restrictions are being lifted today. You'll still have to wear a mask on public transit, at airports, and in medical settings, according to federal guidance. And all businesses still have the right to enforce their own mask policy. This does not mean the pandemic is over. Oregon still had 230 new cases yesterday and seven deaths. And there are still virus variants out there. Vaccination resources can be found by dialing 211 locally, or there is an FAQ and COVID resources also on the OHSU website. An update on the eviction moratorium. It could cost the state of Oregon up to $4.7 billion to handle pandemic-related evictions. That's according to a new report by Portland State University's Homelessness Research and Action Collaborative. By their estimate, over 125,000 households are at risk of eviction once the state moratorium ends. The report didn't take into account that the federal moratorium was recently extended until the end of July, or that state lawmakers recently passed a bill giving some renters an extra two months before being evicted. Researchers say the state could have to spend tens of millions on social services, emergency shelters, juvenile justice services, and medical care. The calculation doesn't take into account other destabilizing consequences of eviction, like educational gaps, and their impact on earnings later in life. The report also warns the evictions will be disproportionately hard on renters of color. Last fall, a university poll found 35% of renters surveyed were behind on rent. That number jumped to 56% for renters of color. The court hearing for former Representative Mike Neerman has been delayed three weeks. The Polk County Republican had been slated to undergo a status check on his case yesterday. His lawyer has asked for a delay, claiming he'll have a better idea of what will happen later on. That's according to a notation in the court records. The prosecutors have agreed to it, and the hearing has been rescheduled for July 19th. Remember, Neerman is facing two misdemeanor charges for opening the side door for violent protesters at the state capitol back in December. The act was caught on surveillance video. Earlier this month, he became the first sitting lawmaker in Oregon history to be expelled from the legislature. All 59 of his colleagues in the House voted to remove him from office. Now, he's one of five people nominated by Republicans to fill the vacancy created by his own expulsion. 
That decision will be made by county commissioners in House District 23 next month. Portland Trailblazers introduced Chauncey Billups as their new head coach yesterday. The 44-year-old becomes the 15th coach in Blazers history, taking over after nine years of Terry Stotts. A five-time All-Star and one-time Finals MVP, Billups was widely revered as a great leader during his 18-year career, most notably with the Detroit Pistons and Denver Nuggets. His close relationship with general manager Neil Oshie and Blazers star Damian Lillard helped him edge out other competitive finalists, Becky Hammond and Mike Detoni. Hammond would have been the first woman hired to lead an NBA team. D'Antoni had a proven track record of success. The hiring comes with some controversy after details of a 1997 rape allegation against Billups during his rookie year resurfaced last week. Billups was never charged in the case and settled a civil suit with the accuser out of court. Olshay has said the Blazers were aware of the allegations and conducted their own investigation. Billups was given a four-year contract with a fifth-year team option. And some good news. The Hollywood Theater is opening back up this weekend. For the first time since the start of the pandemic, the historic movie house will have shows open to the public starting on Thursday. Opening week will feature the new Questlove film, Summer of Soul, a documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival. On July 16th, it will bring back its 70mm film series in honor of their 95th anniversary. Screenings of 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Tenet will be presented on the wide format. Despite COVID restrictions getting loosened, the theater will be doing a slow reopen. Shows will only be on one screen, capacity will be limited to 50%, and masks will be required for everybody. They'll reassess their pandemic policies after the first week. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. It probably doesn't come as a surprise that environmental justice interests often intersect with water interests. That's to say, the future of humanity's water resources is largely tied up in how we treat the earth. Here in our state of Oregon, there's a group called Oregon Water Futures that is launching conversations right at this intersection. Their goal is to ensure that water remains sustainable and accessible for all Oregonians. Joining us now are Cheyenne Holiday and Vivian Satterfield with Oregon Water Futures, two people at the forefront of this fight. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us on. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So uh, water is, of course, a necessity for virtually all life on Earth. But when can you turn on the faucet and purchase it by the gallon that will? It can be easy to take it for granted. Was there a moment in either of your lives when you realized the preciousness of our water resources? Yeah, I do have a personal connection to this. It was actually pretty early on in my life. I was born and raised in Chicago, grew up in a turn of the century uh, apartment building and found out when I was fairly young that the building I was in not only had lead paint inside our apartment, but we had lead pipes. And I just remember as a young kid, 
the feeling of disempowerment that my the adults in my household had around not knowing what toxins were in our own home. And I think this is a classic environmental justice experience that a lot of folks of color, whether it's in urban environments like I was or in rural environments experience. And this is why we have um, this movement talking about the right to know, um, but also just such a precious life affirming commodity like water um, and to, to realize that when you turn on the faucet that that might be poisoning you. Um, mm. That really is what got me activated uh, amongst other things in my environmental justice journey. Yeah, and similar to Vivian, um, I developed a deep connection with water as at a young age. Um, I had a spot in Bend where I spent a lot of time at and we had outdoor showers at restrooms and my family really taught me how to respect water and to make sure we weren't putting our waste in water and how to interact with it um, and respect it. That's very important to try to, you know, instill those habits and, and, and respect for the natural, for our environment, you know, at a younger age. Um, I grew up in uh, Delaware County, uh, Chester, PA to be ex exact, right outside of Philadelphia, and there were a lot of things that we just, you know, we didn't understand. We just didn't get it. Um, and I wish we'd had more education around that when we were younger. Um, the city itself is approximately seven square miles. And within that, uh, we have three trash to steam plants. So we're processing trash from as far as New Jersey and, and parts of Philadelphia and even some parts of New York right out, you know, right in this small black community outside of Philadelphia. So, of course, it affects everything, you know, asthma, um, you know, it's polluting our water, like everything, you know, we're dealing with environmental racism there. But uh, I I'm, I'm really happy that we're starting to have more conversations about this for people to understand the direct correlation between our health, our rights around, you know, uh, what our environment should be and and the ability to, you know, voice our opinion and get involved. So thank you, you know, for the work that both of you are doing right now. What kinds of projects does Oregon Water Futures take on? Yeah, so Oregon Water Futures started with having community conversations and interviewing um, communities of color and low-income communities around their water resources. Um, we're now, after those conversations have been over and we developed a report, we're now shifting to develop a Water Justice Leadership Institute, hoping to build capacity in uplifting these community issues, as well as developing deeper ties and connections um, with uh, tribal nations. Um, and we're hoping that we can build a larger water justice network to connect with people and mobilize efforts. Yeah, education, as you know, I think we've all highlighted even the beginning of this conversation is fundamental. Um, the knowledge of, of uh, how we interact with the innate knowledge of how we already interact with water and then layering on how our institutions and policymakers view our water and the protections that we may have or not have in many cases. So we're hoping to you know, utilize this Water Justice Leadership Institute um, to really capacitate frontline communities, empower them with the knowledge um, for the very various water issues that um, they may be experiencing in their lives and to turn that into um, you know, some, some forms of advocacy, which are already happening, but um, this Leadership Institute is, is definitely something that we're focused on in the near future. Excellent. 
Uh, uniquely, you take a very community-focused approach in this fight to preserve water resources. How did you realize that community engagement was an effective medium for this line of work? We know that community organizing and community engagement is the most powerful tool um, for communities to, to advocate uh, for the policies that directly impact their daily lives. Um, here at Verde, we're located in the Cully community. Um, it's you know high concentrations of poverty, low-income folks. There's a lot of richness in our community, but we are burdened with a lot of these environmental injustices um, of you know having bad actor pollutants in our community, of not having uh, political power. And so we know that community organizing is a model that affects change, whether it's through our advocacy work um, to put an idea on the ballot that won, like the Portland Clean Energy Fund, the only environmental uh, you know, ballot measure that won in that election cycle, um, or whether it's through our energy work that we're doing right now um, to try to win 100% renewable energy at the state level. So we know that this is an effective medium um, you know, within our own organization and the partners at the Oregon Water Justice Futures uh, Project um, are also cognizant that, that this is the, the most effective way to enact change. What kind of lessons have you learned from the diverse groups of Oregonians you've engaged with on the topic? Yeah, so I think that it was super in, like engaging and I feel like personally, I learned so many different ways that people can mm. clean and care for their water, um, whether that's using sunlight or rocks and different ways that different cultures did it. I learned how to different ways to fish. Um, and I think it's really, it was really fun to have conversations around different ways that the participants engaged with their water, whether it was a cultural religious practice or different ways that they saved water while they showered. Um, and I started to use some of those. I learned different ways to use rocks, sunlight to clean my water, but also to save my water when I'm waiting for it to get hot to save it and then use that water to clean or to water my plants in the garden. Um, and I don't know if we were expecting to necessarily get those lessons out of those conversations, mm-hmm. um, but it was they were really fun to have. Mm-hmm. As you uh, engage with these diverse groups and, you know, using what I'm, I'm sure you discovered different me- methods in which to mobilize them and, and get them engaged. Could you speak to some of that? Like there is no blanket strategy that works for everyone, right? Yeah, I think it's really important to realize that these community members and we are all experts of our own experience um and so a lot of our conversations were community led and so we each conversation each interview was different based on who we um, were working with Um, and so to really hear what the participants and the community members need and want and foresee for their community's future and let them drive how things are going I also want to share with your listeners, like, don't forget, y'all, like we were conducting these interviews during the pandemic. 
And so the traditional community engagement methods, uh, in-person meetings, in-person gatherings, um, whether it was in an urban, suburban, or rural area, a lot of those tools were suddenly, um, you know, completely neutralized in our toolbox. And uh, actually, I want to invite Cheyenne to, to share a little bit about how we, uh, an example of how uh, creative ways that we um, were able to still do this engagement in a meaningful way with our diverse communities. Yeah, um, so originally we were going to do in-person um, community conversation events, but due to COVID-19, we had to, you know, shift into phone conversations and Zoom, which opened up a uh, new opportunity with Unite Oregon. We were able to hold one community gathering over Zoom where we had four different languages um, being wow. spoken at once with different interpreters and we were on the phone with some people and you know messaging people and we were able to connect with community members who have never met each other because they speak different languages or they're new to the organization and we were able to make these deep connections and see the parallels within their personal communities and how they are tied to Unite Oregon and they were able to share their own stories and um, really get to know each other and it was so fun the hour flew by so fast um, and the interpreters were awesome and being able to speak up and make sure everybody was heard that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing uniting community through conversation in your recent report water justice for oregon communities you make a distinction between water actors and water consumers what is the difference between these two groups and why is it important to acknowledge in the greater discussion of water justice. The reason why there's a distinction between water actors and water consumers, the largest difference is power. Um, you know, because this is what we really want to highlight in our report that even though every single person has a water story um, and has a, a personal connection um, to water, the institutions uh, that regulate it, that we trust to clean it and deliver it to us, um, you know, uh, don't share the same perspective, um, don't have the same experiences that they're imbuing with us. And so that um, that that difference of power, and that's why we're trying to to engage communities to be more informed, um, to be empowered, to advocate and to share um, how they want to uh, interact with their water, um, with the institutions, I think is the is, is the key here. And that's why it's important that we highlighted it in our report. If you had to identify one, what would you say is the single greatest threat to Oregon's water resources right now? I think that the continued legacy of institutional racism and exclusion in our policymaking and investments at a structural level continues to be the single greatest threat to Oregon's water resources. I know that we are on the precipice of a very frightening weekend here in the Portland metro area and across in the entire West. Um, especially when it comes to drought, and that may be front of mind for folks. If we if we think about the root cause of this fear, the root cause of a lot of the climate change that we are experiencing, and looking at the communities that are going to be disproportionately impacted by these heat events, whether it's outdoor agricultural workers, um, and I want to shout out to our partners at Bikun, the Farm Workers Union, who will be continuing to pick the fruits and vegetables and produce in our region throughout this weekend wow. um, and contributed 
you know, significantly to the Oregon Water Futures Report, um, whether it's other agricultural folks, you know, who are thinking about how to ensure their livestock um, have clean water, whether it's us here, um, you know, turning on uh, our water and making swamp coolers to stay cool. I mean, the single biggest threat to any of our natural resources really is structural racism and exclusion. Um, and so in order to address any of these other issues, we have to look at the root cause. And, and there's, um, in the United States, there's that deep rot and we have to name it. Um, and we have to also uh, acknowledge the, the, the tribal sovereignty um, and uh, that we have here in the, in, in the United States. Mm. Is there any way that X-Ray listeners can get involved in the work you do and join the fight for water justice for all? We have an amazing website. You can go ahead and uh, download the full report and also some two-page summaries that we've translated into all the languages of the participants who joined us. It's OregonWaterFutures.org. So please log on, um, you know, check out the report. There's also at the very bottom of the website, there's a way that you can sign up with your email address for updates. If the Water Justice Leadership Institute sounds like a, something you'd like to know more about, if you feel like you'd like to volunteer with us, that's a place to, to plug in. All right. You guys have heard it. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Shine Holiday and Vivian Satterfield from, Water, from Oregon Water Futures. Thanks for dropping by to discuss the pressing topic of water justice. We can't wait to hear about all the good that you and your organization are doing. And please, everyone, stay cool this weekend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to Cheyenne and Vivian for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in just about 30 minutes. And thank you, Democracy. We'll talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.